And finally, I also want to tell you not to be swayed by all those fake news, trending topics that rise on social media based on what they call bots. Our party's president already denounced it, and we are going to continue to do so. We are going to continue doing it because these trends on social media are actually bought, and they don't mean anything at all. We're doing well, we are doing very well. The country is doing very well, and it will get better. And that is from a video titled Mensajes Importantes, released by Claudia Scheinbaum on YouTube on Tuesday, February 13th. I'm Melissa Ford, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone. In our rapidly expanding viewership, uh, my name is Joshua Trevino, and I'm Chief of Intelligence and Research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And this is The Hard Country, where we talk about the hardest countries of all, Texas and Mexico. I'm here with my colleague and friend, Melissa Ford. Melissa, thanks for reading that. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Yeah, tell us why. Tell us why you read it. Yeah, so uh, Claudia Scheinbaum, the very likely next president of Mexico, put out this statement uh, about two days ago on mm -hmm. February 13th. Um, and just to summarize it really quick, um, so n not everybody has to go and watch it, she talks about a lot of things. So she, she talks about how well the economy is going, how well tourism is doing, um, the low levels of poverty and unemployment. Um, a couple more things that I want to note. Um, she brags about how Mexico is now the U.S.'s main trading partner. Oh, yeah. And then um, she also says that Morena's new economic model is not like the old one where there used to be so much corruption. I don't know if you saw that part. Wow, what a miracle, yes. Yeah, then she announces that this weekend she's registering before the INE and that she's kicking off her campaign with an event at the Zócalo and she makes sure to drop it in that she is leading the polls by three to one. Um, but the part that was really interesting to me was the part that's hidden at the very end, uh, which is what I just read, where she seems to be talking about the current president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and all the allegations that we've seen online. Uh, in fact, the ones that we talked about last episode with the ProPublica report. Right. 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 And so I'm curious, you know, she calls it noticias falsas. And when we first saw the video, we were like, is she talking about it? Is she not talking about it? But it's pretty evident to me now after watching it a couple of times that that is the only thing that she could be referring to. Because um, she, you know, she calls it bot. She says it doesn't mean anything at all. She calls it fake news, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. So is it clear to you that this is what she's talking about? There is there is no question in my mind that that's exactly what she's talking about. You know, this ProPublica story uh, about the Mexican president, the current Mexican president's involvement with the Sinaloa and drug cartel is almost two weeks old uh, at this point. And yeah. that news cycle should have come and gone. But what's evident is that it has absolutely disturbed, alarmed, freaked out the president mm -hmm. of Mexico. And so he is demanding and the whole apparatus is demanding that uh, that everyone get on record against it. And mm -hmm. this is this is Claudia Scheinbaum's uh, effort to get on record against it. Um, it's rare for them that they lose control of the narrative. Uh, they're usually pretty good yeah. at that. Uh, but right now, when you look at trending topics on, on Twitter in Mexico, number one trending topic for a while has been the hashtag narco presidente, the narco president, which which he kind of is, if only metaphorically, but probably more than that. And uh, and and that is that is truly alarming. I think it's alarming on on two fronts for them. One that it really uh, puts a dent in the facade that's very important to them that they speak for Mexico, they speak for the people of Mexico, and that the people of Mexico are one with them ideologically. That's hugely important. Mm. It's clearly not true if there's a, if there's a constituency believing that the president is in league with with the drug cartel. The other reason that they that they dread it uh, is that they dread American attention and intervention. I think this is a paradox that kind of is at the heart of of a lot of this this fourth transformation uh, ideology that mm -hmm. AMLO leads, the Cuatro T uh, mm -hmm. in Spanish. But the Cuatro T is is anti-American fundamentally. Uh, it yeah. is. But at the same time, like a lot of anti-Americans, they uh, paradoxically paradoxically rely heavily upon American validation. And if there is a belief that the United States government 
uh, or the press of the United States, the people of the United States believe that they are criminals, that uh, arouses a dread in them that goes far beyond the superficial explanation of intervención. It means the source of their own psychological legitimization. I don't mean Mexicans in general. I mean the specific ideological cohort is kicked out from under them. And that to them is existential. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. What's what's very fascinating to me is to see Claudia just coming out and defending AMLO, right? It's not, mm-hmm. surpri- it's not surprising, but there's been all of this talk uh, recently, and it's not just coming from me. It's coming from people that I've talked to in Mexico. It's coming from friends that I've talked to. In fact, like I just read an op-ed about it recently about people saying that Claudia is a puppet um, and how... AMLO is really pulling all of the strings. Um, and th- the article that I recently read was about how Lopez Obrador is looking aw- for a way to leave his entire agenda to Claudia. And he doesn't trust her enough to let her set her own agenda. Yeah. So I think that it's fascinating to see her like coming to his defense. And maybe this is an example of what we're going to see um, during her presidency if she wins in June. Well, I think I think supporting that point uh, that you're making is the fact that, uh, you know, you know, typically like in a normal, not that there's any such thing as a normal Mexican election, but in a typical Mexican election, presidential election, what you would see is the formal candidacy kicking off because they have they have defined candidate and pre-candidate periods in Mexico, which yeah. is a little bit of a kabuki, but uh, there's historical reasons for it. Um, but I think it's March 1st, right, when she becomes a real candidate. Is that right? Yes. Or she can yeah. say, I'm a candidate. Well, that's when she for... can start campaigning. Oh, okay. She's announcing her candidacy officially this like, Sunday. Like right now, she can yeah. stage rallies for fun. Uh, yeah. but, but after March 1st, she can stage rallies for election. Okay. Um, uh, but you know, t- typically, what would happen is right now there are um, there's this this uh, this kind of this policy group process that's underway with all the Mexican candidates, and so they'll kick mm-hmm. off the candidacies, their official candidacies, on March first, and concurrent with that, they're going to announce what's basically the platform, the election platform. And when you and I were in Mexico City, I think this happened, or like yeah. right before, uh, AMLO comes out and announces what was it, like a twenty seven point. I don't remember the exact number. It was twenty. Twenty. It was a tw- yeah. okay, a twenty point plan for constitutional reform, which completely wipes out any independent agenda that his putative successor was going to have. So I, I agree with the analysis. I think he, um, you know, I think he probably uh, put his finger on the scale for, mm-hmm. for Scheinbaum over um, Marcelo Ebrard, who was her major competitor, specifically mm-hmm. because uh, she doesn't have the mass populist base that he does nationwide, yep. uh, which means that there's not as much constituency for her, which means that, that uh, you know, presumably she's she's more controllable. And then he is evidence no respect for her prerogative or mm-hmm. initiative and things like that. He's He just, he came out and set the agenda for the next year at minimum in Mexican governance, regardless of who the president is. Uh, and so I think that is what it looks like. What, what's interesting from a political standpoint though, and, and this is where like my analysis of, of Scheinbaum is insufficient uh, to really say, I mean, she's really only got two pathways uh, at this point. Um, she can acquiesce, uh, which is she's made every show of doing, and maybe she has to during the candidacy period, uh, to AMLO, to his personal fixations, to you know everything that characterizes his governance. Or, and she can continue to do that in office, or uh, she can make a radical break and assert independence Mm -hmm. uh, once in office and once there is no need to rely upon the process or the party structure. Um, If she does that, uh, it's 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 difficult to see how it ends up because there's you know frankly there's a potential for bloodshed uh, yeah. in a case like that. But it, yeah. it would be it would be governance chaos uh, in Mexico, and I I don't I haven't seen anything in her biography or past actions that indicates that she'll it's not like she'll do anything like that. Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. But a different type of figure might. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened in Bolivia. Quick oh, really? aside, but um, okay. you know Evo got one person elected, and then mm-hmm. once he got elected, he kind of showed his other face and now it's like a constant fight and Evo's coming back and going to run against him and the other president fired everyone that Evo had hired. It was a mess. So really, like you said, we will see if that will happen. But I don't in this case, I don't think it's likely. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, But we were we kind of dropped it in there, but we didn't tell our listeners. I don't think we told our listeners we were going to Mexico City, but we are freshly back from Mexico we City. Are, yes. And there's a lot that we learned. There's a lot that we're going to weave into pretty much every conversation and every topic that we have um, on this podcast. Yeah. So yeah. we will be dropping that in for sure um, every chance that we get. Um, but as far as this week, um, I want to begin by asking you something. I think one thing that was interesting to me, um, our colleague Kareen, to you this time that we went is 
just talking to friends, obviously not people that are in the policy space and deep into the weeds of politics, but talking to friends and Uber drivers and just, you know, random people. Something that was surprising to me is your average Mexican has no idea what's going on at the border. Mm -hmm. um, some of them do because of what they see on the news, but most of them, let's be honest, they don't really know. And the ones that do don't really care because they don't think that it affects them or their lifestyle. Right. And that's very different from your average American. Um, I don't think that there's a single person in the U.S. and maybe that's a stretch that doesn't know what's happening at the border, yeah. especially now when it's affecting like every big city and every town and every every place in America. You can't really get away from it. And um, I thought that that was interesting because I don't think there's a single person in Mexico that doesn't realize that cartels are growing in power. Right. Um, I think that's really difficult to deny. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but one of the things that is making them so powerful is the situation at the border. Mm -hmm. We have this lawless and porous border and they're able to make more money than ever before from yeah. illegal immigration. Yeah. And you wrote something, and I want you to share it a little bit with our listeners about how well, the exact words that you used is every single illegal migrant is trafficked by cartels. Yes. And so that's what we're facing at it the U.S.-Mexico border. And so I wanted to share a little bit of what you, what you wrote with, with our listeners. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, well, I, I have to apologize to the listeners. I did not come prepared with, with that. You're, you're talking about my testimony. Uh, is that right? Or What you, the Plaza de Armas. The, oh, the sure, exit. sure. Yes, yes, they're all there. Oh, right, right. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to talk about the, the Bostonian the Bostonian leftists who are taking in migrants oh, at this point. But, well, I mean, maybe the right place to start would be to show the clip on that one. Yes. So, let, so, so, so let's go ahead and watch that now. You'll only see here on NBC10 Boston, a migrant family from Haiti is sharing their experience. They're searching for shelter in the Boston area and then recently found a host home in Brookline. And now they're looking for jobs. As NBC10's Aaron Logan reports, they say these last few weeks have been life-changing. And it's been an emotional few weeks for Wildande Joseph and her husband. First, sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport, then in Children's Hospital with their two-year-old daughter who got very sick. It's more difficult at that time. She felt bad, as any mother would. Now things are looking much brighter as they've been welcomed into Lisa Hillenbrand's Brookline apartment. Tu niña es muy alegre ahora. She says her daughter is very happy. When she wakes up in the morning, she says, hi, Lisa, and everyone starts the day smiling. It's a delight, and it's really fun having them. What I realized is there's so much prejudice against refugees, mostly because people don't know them. Lisa says she feels like she has her own personal chef, as Wildande loves cooking. Te gusta la ocupación? Sí. In fact, her goal is to open up her own restaurant. The couple has their work permits, and they've been taking English classes. They're open to work anywhere to save money for their future. In the meantime, they're enjoying their time with Lisa, their new friend for life and their daughter's new grandmother. They are hardworking. They want to learn. They want to be successful. And I feel great helping, and I get to understand the refugee crisis from the inside. Lisa says she's so impressed by the number of people she's met right here at Brookline Town Hall meetings who've been stepping up and hosting families. She's hopeful more will do the same in the coming days and weeks. In Brookline, Erin Logan, NBC10 Boston. All right, the need for more migrant shelters in Massachusetts is something we've been following really closely. You can find more information about this and find out how you can actually help on our website, NBC10Boston.com. So this is this is an absolutely incredible clip. I mean, what we're seeing here is uh, this, you know, local government, local governments up north in blue jurisdictions are um, essentially housing illegals in private homes uh, voluntarily at this point, although we'll see how long that lasts. But, uh, but, you know, one of the things that, 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 that I've been saying, that we've been saying and talking about uh, with this idea that every single illegal alien here is, is trafficked, which they are at this point, it's, it, it's trafficking through and through, is that, is that the trafficking doesn't end and the exploitation of these people doesn't end 
when they enter the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're continually in hock uh, to somebody. And so uh, when you think about it as, as what it is, which is commerce and man, there's a word for that, it's slavery, it's slave trade uh, at this point. Um, uh, then, then, then you start to see, you know, despite kind of the, the what I think is the confected cheeriness of the clip that we just watched, uh, something very grim emerged. Uh, you know, th- this woman uh, on the on, on the clip, and you know, I, I don't know her. You know, I'm sure she 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 may come from good motives, but multiply her by thousands of individuals, and what you end up getting is an exploitative system where you essentially get free labor from individuals. Uh, and that's, you know, that is, that can be enslavement uh, because these folks are, are, are trapped. They've been trafficked and put along this, this pipeline of humanity and dumped into a wealthy uh, Anglo leftist house mm-hmm. in, in the Boston area. And um, uh, it's very revelatory that she says it's like having a cook, of course. So, 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 so what's gonna happen? I mean, I mean, you look at, I mean, just look at the incentives on this and look at it from a labor market perspective. Uh, uh, if there is a glut of, of this trafficked, unaccountable, off the books, uh, you know, uh, typically unskilled or low-skilled labor that's flooding in, uh, and then it's available for free to take into your home, people are gonna do that. So there's gonna be an aftermarket. I mean, I hate talking in these terms because we're talking about the commodification of people who bear the image of God, right? So, I mean, this is, this is bad. Uh, but uh, you know, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna see an aftermarket and illegal migrants. Uh, you know, you're gonna see people trade them. You're gonna see people hire them out. Mm-hmm. You're gonna see people who are going to collect them basically in group living situations. And, and there are very ugly things that are down the road as a consequence of the failure to secure the border because there is not, you know, beings of, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the moral depravity of the Mexican and Latin American cartels and traffickers who move these people across continents and across borders. But I wouldn't say it's automatically for certain that there is a morally superior class of people who are in these destination cities, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, and Dallas, and so on, uh, who are going to encounter these folks and say, oh, you know, now you're here. Now you're, you're going to be you're going to be treated as you ought to be treated. Um, uh, you know, I think I think there's going to be a lot more cases like what you see in this in this particular case where a woman takes in a family and she gets. Uh, you know, uh, market goods, basically companionship of a sort, and then and then and then free cooking. Um, can I read you another story about this? Uh, because because yeah, yeah. the slave trade has already started. Uh, so this actually uh, this is a new story from yesterday, February fourteenth. Um, uh, it's from Lake County, Illinois. So if you don't know where Lake County is, it's one of the it's one of the nice outlying areas of Chicago land. Uh, authorities in Lake County, Illinois, have laid out a series of dark allegations Wednesday against a woman accused of forcing undocumented immigrants, it's illegal aliens for normals, into labor to cover a, quote, debt for illegal entry into the U.S. So there's a woman named Gladys Ibanez Olea, who's 34 years old, who essentially enslaved a, um, a 19-year-old woman, a 2-year-old child, a 22-year-old woman, and a 15-year-old boy. Uh, and uh, none of them, it wasn't a family group. None of them knew each other, except mm-hmm. for the two-year-old was the was the son of the nineteen-year-old. Um, but what this woman did was essentially, um, uh, you know, sent these uh, sent these folks out to work. Uh, and I mean, I'm not going to read everything here because it's it's chilling. But tortured the two-year-old uh, while the while while uh, his mother yeah. was was away. Horrific, uh, and so again, this is not the only case. But when you have when you have this unsecured border with these millions of people flooding in, this is what develops on the receiving end, uh, and it is corrupting as much you know as much as it is inhumane and, and bestial for, for for the migrants, for the illegals who who get here and are treated like this. It is morally corrupting for us as well because we collectively as a society are now uh, participating in some way in, in in a slave market. We must call it what it is. It is a slave market. Uh, whether you have a smile on your face and you're happy that the Haitians are cooking mm-hmm. for you for free, or whether you're and a much, feeling good about and it, feeling great about yeah. it, because telling your friends that they need to do it too. How virtuous you yeah. are! Yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. And then, and then it becomes like a socially validated thing to do, um, uh, or, or if you are, you know, much more openly malevolent, like this woman in Lake County, Illinois, who is is, is literally like profiting off the labor uh, with, uh, you know, with, with with these folks who arrive. This is going to grow. And it's amazing to me, um, deeply disappointing, that the realization uh, that this is the end state of human trafficking in the United States and it's the end state of an open border, uh, it's disappointing to me that that concern over this is really only restricted to one side of the political divide. I mean, this should be a society-wide concern. I mean, I think we all have a consensus against 
uh, enslavement uh, and exploitation of, of unpaid labor, especially of you know individuals who have no recourse to the law. And uh, th this is why I'll just close with this. We keep saying that the kindest thing we can do for these migrants is to close the border, and it really is. It really is the kindest thing we can do because that disempowers the cartels, and it also prevents them, saves them from entering into circumstances like the ones we see now. We've said that on the podcast before, but this is the perfect, like this enca encapsulates what we've been talking about, how it's it's truly keeping the border open that's inhumane and it not is. the opposite, not the alternative. A hundred percent. And in your excerpt, you said about every migrant being trafficked, you said, the results are what we see everywhere now. Millions of illegal aliens without meaningful skills or pro prospects all in debt to the cartels that move them and often enough brutalized and raped them in every community in America. So we've known for a long time that foreign cartels are you know, profiting from illegal immigrants and profiting from them wanting to come here and have a better life. Yeah. But this is a new side of the coin, right? Like this, this story about the Highland Park woman who, so basically she, she um, promised them like housing and money and jobs and then mm -hmm. asked for them to be illegally brought into the US and they were probably very excited, like, hey, we're going to have a better life in the U.S. and we're going to have jobs, we're going to have money, we're going to have free housing. But what happened was they arrived and she took their IDs. She took all of their money. She took all of their goods. Um, according to the investigation, this is super devastating, but she had like the fridge and the cabinets locked so she wouldn't let them eat or she would control what they ate. That's right. And then the two minors, um, I think it was like a 15-year-old and a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. um, the 19-year-old's not a minor, but yeah. um, it was a she though, got yeah. them like fake IDs so that they wouldn't have to go to school and that they could work full-time. Yeah. And so it's just such a horrific story. And I, I, I know that we often say like that's what happens when we have a lawless, porous border. And when we say that it's the best thing for migrants, we're not saying it to like mask that we're actually anti-migrant. No, like it's quite the opposite. And I right. hope that this story shows people that. It does, yeah, well, I, I would hope it does too. And I hope, I hope people understand that we are on the precipice of something extremely ugly, extremely malevolent, extremely malignant that will corrupt us as much as the cartels have corrupted their own societies of origin. Uh, and, and all this all this ought to be a warning. I'll add one thing from from a historical standpoint. This is all predictable. I mean, it was predictable in the one sense because you just you know you understand like the nature of humanity. And again, when you have this flood of people who are essentially off the books, they're not part of any legal structure. They're not citizens. They have no recourse to authority or protection or anything like that. And they don't know the culture. Of course, they're going to be vulnerable and they're going to be exploited and they're going to be enslaved. Uh, you know, we should call it what it is. Um, uh, but you know, you think back to to the old uh, Bracero worker program, which lasted, I think, from 1942, and it was shut down in 1965, mm -hmm. really at labor union request because they didn't yeah. like the competition. Um, but one of the issues with the old Bracero program was that uh, th th there wasn't real labor mobility built into it, and so it would happen and be like like one of the one of the legal workers would come from Mexico to work in the United States as a Bracero, and uh, because he uh, wasn't allowed to change jobs, basically, he had no leverage versus the employer. So what ended up happening was a lot of the guys were were dumped in the US, they lived in substandard conditions, and they would work for a season wherever it was in the field or the railroad or, or wherever they were employed, and in conditions that the US citizens would never be subjected to. Uh, uh, and then to add insult to injury, uh, the payments were actually routed through the Mexican government. Uh, okay. And uh, right, and guess what happens to a lot of that? Like it gets filtered off by they corrupt officials along the way. Of course. Well, without, I mean, I mean, that's why the Mexicans negotiated it that way, right? Because again, they're in the business of exploiting their citizenry, not actually helping them out. And so, um, uh, you know, looking back to Bracero, you could you could predict, and that was a legal program uh, with an illegal regime that we have now. Uh, every abuse that you saw there is going to be exponentially worse. And I am. Uh, unfortunately, expecting, especially with the Biden regime, uh, more and more stories like this and more and worse outcomes like this, because this idea that you can farm out your illegals uh, to individual homes is going to become more and more popular in blue areas, especially as schools are closed and services are cut, which actually has happened because of the illegal immigrant influx. Uh, into these communities and people are going to say we need alternatives we can't house these immigrants in our schools and then they're going to turn to the general community and I'll, uh, one one final thought right now it's voluntary like everybody who takes in an illegal for example in in this massachusetts story has done so voluntarily 
Um, but that may not last. Uh, and I would, I would encourage hard country viewers to watch specifically for intervention in the rental markets um, uh, and rhetoric about excess capacity in housing uh, for signals that they're going to start forcing these individuals into properties and homes of people who otherwise would not take them. Yeah, that's it's sad because people have caught on that there is like this surplus, right, in the unskilled labor market. And mm -hmm. not just that, they've realized that they can do it off the books. They can. So oh, it's yeah. definitely going to become more popular. And since you brought it up, I want to ask you a little bit about the Braceros program. Sure. Just because I feel like in the last couple of months, a lot of people have been bringing it up mm -hmm. as maybe a solution to what we're seeing in the border crisis, right? Like we need to just legalize it and um, put a program like that on the table. But clearly there was a lot of things that were very problematic with that. Yeah. What would need to change for us to have a program like that again, uh, where we can have the skill, make the payments, and we can have like people go back and forth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I, did, I did a lot of research on Bracero in the middle of the last decade, uh, uh, specifically because, uh, you, you know, with my background, uh, knowing, you know, how South Texas and the border used to be, uh, if we had, uh, and I think I mentioned this before, if you and I had been talking about 14 years ago, uh, I would have been much more on the open border side because I didn't understand what was happening to Mexico. Now, in the intervening decade plus, uh, you know, having been there and see it, uh, you know, one of our virtues as conservatives, we go where the evidence leads us. And, and the evidence, as I see it, and I think it's incontestable at this point, is that things that were possible two generations ago with a relatively peaceful border, with a relatively accountable Mexican state, I stress the word relatively, it's doing a lot of work in both cases, but, but certainly much better than what we had here. You actually could envision some kind of a legal program uh, to have labor come and then labor leave uh, mm -hmm. according to according to market demand. I don't think any of that's possible anymore. Uh, and there's a few re there's a few reasons for it. One is that we don't really have a partner in the Mexican state. The other is that the Mexican state doesn't really exist in the way that it ought to uh, because mm -hmm. it is breaking up into kind of warlordism and and uh, you know well narco presidente is in charge. Uh, and uh, and so and and but then the other reason is that migration is no longer connected to um, seasonal and cyclical labor demand in the same way uh, that it used to be. Mm. Uh, it's not that there is no tie, uh, but the reality is that, you know, if, you, if you're talking about kind of, you know, uh, like if, if the potential energy of the, you know, the, the difference in, in, in markets is here, kind of to mix metaphors, um, if that was the case in the 1980s, and so you had people go from you know high supply to to, mm -hmm. to low labor supply, uh, now the now the difference is like this. And so so even even though like U.S. demand may fluctuate down here, people are still going to come regardless. So we could be in the depth of the recession, and you're still going to get several million Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, and so on. Uh, to say nothing of you know Mexicans from Chiapas and Guerrero, for example, who are going to want to come to the United States. And so and so when it when it stops being meaningfully tied to what we in the United States perceive as changes in the labor market, then you really are in a new regime. Uh, and so uh, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but I want to answer it directly. Um, what would it take to get there, to something like that? One thing only, security, a secure border. If you have a secure border, then many other things become possible from a policy standpoint. Um, but, but we don't, and that's why we, we, we fixate on it and focus on it. Uh, you know, we talk to policymakers about it too, both yeah. in Mexico and the United States. Yeah. It's interesting to me um, that, uh, that in both countries, you do have cohorts of folks, mostly on the left, who when you tell them that, ideologically they don't want to accept it. If you tell them, you know, you might get some of what you want. I'm not advocating for this, by the way, but I'm just saying from an analytic perspective, you might get some of what you want. You might get a labor program or you might get, you know, amnesty for, you know, your two-year-olds with red hair or whatever. I mean, I mean that, that like, like, like the only pathway to that is real border security. The only political pathway to that is real border security. And you tell people that in Mexico, too, which, which you and I have. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, hey, you know, it's great that you want to do this, you know, X, Y, and Z with the United States. But that border security, it's meaningless. So, you know, deliver border security, and then, and then you can have a full policy conversation. And they don't want to do it. Um, uh, and they don't want to do it for reasons that I think are ideological. Uh, yeah. uh, because there's, there's just a, an, an, like a, like a, an intellectual inability to concede that, the, that migration could be anything but virtuous. Uh, and therefore, anything that we do to oppose it is, is unvirtuous. That's one reason. But another reason, I think, is that there's money being made from it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, on the US side, um, I mean, who knows? It may be that uh, elite wealthy Bostonians uh, really love their Guatemalan slaves, uh, you know, in time. You know, I say that as a joke, but that may come true in a few years, uh, which is extremely grim. Um, 
uh, and and of course on the on on the Mexican side, the money that they make from human trafficking is just is is through the roof, and it's pervasive, and it corrupts politics and everything else. And mm-hmm. um, so, border security is the answer. Like we could we could we could have that conversation if we had border security. But no one listens. That's no something one. that has been very fascinating, especially on the Mexican side. We say like, hey, if we have border security, a ton of things are on the table. But until we have border security, but it doesn't seem to register. It doesn't register. I think I think there's a realization. I'll be vague here because uh, a lot of our conversations were off the record, and we're going to respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there is, broadly speaking, among multiple people, uh, I perceive. I'm curious if you perceive this too. Uh, a recognition that to deliver that would enable fights within Mexico. They don't think they can win. Yeah. You think so? I think that's accurate. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but it's a result of their choices. Exactly. Yeah. And well, we can and we can help if they let us. Yeah, because we'll let win. Because we'll win. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's uh, three more things that I want to discuss with you okay. on the American policy side. Sure. So let's shift to this. Um, the first one is that uh, Republicans, mm-hmm. specifically Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton yes. and Texas Representative Morgan Luttrell, have introduced bills in the U.S. Congress to neutralize the Jalisco New Generation Cartel which is said to be like the most dangerous criminal uh, group in all of Mexico. Right. Um, who knows? That that, yeah. that fluctuates quite that, a bit. That'll change. Yeah. Um, but this act, it's the Jalisco Cartel Neutralization Act. It's demanding military strategy against um, CJNG leaders. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about military strategy on this podcast before. Um, but what this is seeking, it's it's seeking to make the Department of Defense report every 90 days on efforts to capture or kill um, the cartel leaders of this cartel. Yeah. So it's saying that the cartel, speaking our language, that not just this cartel, but cartels in general are fueling the drug crisis in the U.S. and they're a direct threat to national security. We've been saying that for a long time. Right. Um, So, yeah, what do you think of this? Can you unpack it? It's a very, I mean, it's a very short bill. It's three pages, um, mm-hmm. which is which is unusual. You know, when the uh, when the Senate released its um, its uh, devastatingly bad border bill, what was it? HR eight one five, six one five or eight one five? I don't recall. Uh, in any case, we don't have to remember because it's dead uh, <laughs> and it deserved to die. But uh, that was a three hundred seventy page bill, uh, which uh, you and I and the team read in like ninety minutes uh, and analyzed in in one hundred twenty minutes. Uh, so I, I say that to brag and uh, candor. Cause, that was super- impressive. Cause we did a great job on that one. Uh, and you were in Mexico. Uh, and we were in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so it was a relief to read a three-page bill, all of which to say. And, uh, you know, both the sponsors, Latrell's great. Um, uh, t- Cotton, probably one of my favorite senators, uh, you know, not least because during the insurrectionary summer of 2020, uh, Cotton took the New York Times to call for the use of the military to bring peace uh, back to American communities, which was 100% correct. He got a ton of flack for it. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge here, uh, even though it's four years later, Senator Cotton, you were right, and you continue to be right about this. What, what, what's interesting about this is, um, uh, I, guess, I guess, two big things. Uh, set aside the identification of CJNG, which is interesting. I really don't know what the rationale is behind it. I guess somehow it's elevated to become like the most dangerous cartel. I think there, there's several dangerous cartels in Mexico. So, you know, Familia Michoacana, just wait for the next massacre and we'll see who does it. And that'll be yeah. that'll be the new most dangerous cartel. But, you know, the Sinaloan, CJNG is definitely one of the big ones. Been uh, making headlines. Familia Michoacana. Uh, yeah, there's a the, the, there's a lot. Um, you know, the, the Gulf cartel is still out there. Mm. All of which is to say, so it's great. Uh, two big things on this uh, that are of interest to me. One is that, as you note, it explicitly places the onus upon the Secretary of Defense, not DHS, not DOJ, who are the traditional um, kind of executive branch uh, agencies, top level agencies, to go after Mexican cartels. This is a militarization bill, uh, which, of course, we support. Uh, we think, you know, we think the DOD needs to, as the Department of Defense attends to its COCOM-based responsibilities around the world and defending the borders of Israel and defending the borders of Ukraine and defending the integrity of Taiwan, all of which I personally support. Um, but there seems to be a, a missing piece in the vision, broadly speaking, of the Department of Defense, which is that their first responsibility is to defend the borders of the United States. And so this would be a welcome corrective in that vein. The other interesting thing about this is that there is no mention 
of cooperation with the Mexicans at all mm-hmm. in the bill. None. This is a pure 100% intervention bill. Now, it doesn't, it, does, it doesn't preclude cooperation with the Mexicans. I want to be clear. Like when you read the text of the bill, there's, there's room in there for the Secretary of Defense to say, we're working with Sedana, we're working with Samad, or we're working with you know, whomever in Mexico to get this done. But it also doesn't require it. Uh, and so in, what's implied there is that the Mexicans can take it or leave it if the bill passes, which unfortunately it won't right now, um, but is a signal I think it's a great signal. You know, if I were if I were on the Mexican side down there, I would view this with alarm. I wouldn't view it with alarm because it's going to become law, because uh, I think the chances are are infinitesimal. But I would view it with alarm because what what uh, Congressman Luttrell and Senator Cotton are signaling here is a real change of mindset and approach on the part of normal mainstream conservatives uh, to this issue. Uh, you know, again, rewind 15 years, this kind of initiative would have come from, frankly, an extreme branch mm-hmm. of, you know, probably Californian uh, conservatism that was way out there uh, and didn't really have meaningful power. Uh, now it's moved to the middle. And it's moved to the middle, by the way, not because we've radicalized on our side. It's moved to the middle because of years of frustration with the Mexican state, particularly under Lopez Obrador. And uh, so I like the bill and my only... Uh, I had a one word response to it, it would be more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, people are fed up and we've been talking to legislators for the past at least year and a half, trying to get them to wake up to the fact that the Mexican government is not a partner and that whatever policy actions that we take towards Mexico need to be uh, unilateral. Right. And so they need to be one sided because the Mexican government is not a willing and cooperating partner when it comes to these issues. You know, I think I think the Mexicans uh, and you're right. We have talked about uh, this a lot. The, 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 the Mexican state. I keep saying the Mexicans is a shorthand. I want to be clear. The Mexican state, not not, not Mexicans at large. Of course. Uh, but, but, but the Mexican state needs to believe, credibly believe that the United States will do what it must to protect its own citizenry, as it ought to, as any nation ought to, candidly. Um, it's an alien concept to them because they certainly don't feel compelled to do what they need to do to protect the Mexican citizenry, which they ought to. Uh, but uh, if they think that we'll do whatever we need to protect ourselves, I actually think that's the seeds of real fruitful cooperation because it's the only thing that they respect. It really is. Uh, you know, you know, pleas for cooperation and you know, under the dust deals that they do with like the Biden regime folks um, don't generate uh, what's missing in this relationship which is their respect for us. Uh, you know, we, we bend over backwards to show respect for them. It's time for it to be reciprocated. What do you think that the reaction will be? Because in a lot of the talks about US intervention, I think it create, creates a deeper wedge in between the two countries, at least with the leadership that Mexico has right now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk after a lot of US policy talk about um, our sovereignty and, you know, Right. Things we've talked about on this podcast before. So what's it going to take for them to realize? Uh, what it's going to take is for the United States to actually mean what it says and to do and to do what it has to do. If if the United States, I and mean, we've talked about this over and over, actually, you know, I, I, I have said consistently that the most effective thing that we can do uh, actually is not anything uh, military. Uh, I think that needs to be on the table. The most effective thing that we can do is link trade and security, mm-hmm. really. Uh, you know, and, and, and look, you know, historically at what's gotten results. It was Trump threatening tariffs that would that would crash the Mexican economy within 60 to 90 days. Uh, that's the kind of thing. And, and the reason that I got results was because the Mexicans believed it. They knew he'd do it and he would have. Uh, and so and so that, that, that's the kind of thing that we need to get back to uh, is is I think I think linking trade and security is the number one thing. And if it gets to the point where there is where there is a, you know, a need for for you know, uh, military action uh, in some way. Um, first of all, we ought to do it, but I think there's a lot of steps till we get there. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. It Josh. should be known it's on the escalation ladder, though. Yeah. I, I think I think a lot of the problem that the Biden regime sees right now, and you and I have talked about this here with like Herman Kahn's theory of escalation and so on. Uh, a lot of the problem with the Biden regime right now around the world is that nobody believes that they're actually on the escalation ladder. So if there's some if there's some consequence that's you know up here on the rung and you're down here, uh, and and that nobody believes because it's true, it's not, that, that, the, that the Biden folks also climb to this other rung. Mm-hmm. We've got to get to where they believe we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. Um, I want to ask you something else, and we're actually moving outside of Texas for this one. Okay. But in Arizona, a new law has just been proposed sure. to criminalize immigrants. 
Um, this law was proposed by Arizona senators, and it's intended to allow, if you know, if it's approved, uh, local and state agents to arrest undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, you know, to get your thoughts on this, and then maybe to link that with that new SB four story that you were just telling me about. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, it's funny the the, the use of undocumented is one of the great um, successful con jobs that our I know you hate our that. media has played. I really do hate it, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I hate I hate Undocumented. I'm also not a fan of a lot of the other stuff they've tried, Chicano, Latino, so on. Um, uh, but Undocumented is, is uh, you know, it takes, it, takes a, <laughs> it takes an act of illegality and frequently an act of invasion um, in the constitutional sense and reduces it to a mere bureaucratic matter. Uh, so it drives me crazy. It's not your fault. I know it's in the story. I was just reading. Uh, no, no, I know, no, I know you were. <laughs> the language um, of the text. Uh, but but all, all, all that being said, so, so I haven't read the text of the Arizona bill. So, so I may have called on that. I knew you were going to ask me about it, and I just failed to, failed to read the bill. But, 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 but it's interesting to see, first of all, I mean, uh, first of all, we should be clear that the governor of Arizona is never going to sign this, so it's not going to become law. Mm. But it's interesting to see at least that state legislators in other states are looking at Texas and presumptively uh, following the Texas example and realizing that they do have plenary powers under the Constitution uh, uh, over people within their own borders, and so and so I think this is great. Uh, actually, that you know states are able to stand up and say, or at least state state office holders at this point will stand up and say, you know, we can do something about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this. You know, Arizona obviously was the site of the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, SB 1070 uh, back in 2000. I don't remember when it was passed, uh, but uh, I think it was 2010 uh, that, that that essentially gave uh, state law enforcement a lot of this a lot of this power. It wasn't a deportation bill, if I remember correctly, but it was essentially a, a um, mm-hmm. you know you could check. Uh, I think that was 2010. Status. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, because the Supreme Court decision relating to it was in 2012. Yeah, and it took two, two, years, two years later. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, um, uh, so I think it's great, uh, and uh, a lot of these state efforts are going to ride on the effective and sensible implementation of SB4 here in Texas, which is the uh, which is the the migration removal bill that passed in the special session um, last uh, just last year, 90 days ago actually, uh, and uh, and so and so I think I think that you know if Texas is able to prevail versus the Department of Justice versus the Mexican state. Um, and it's able to show that legislation like this can be enacted in a candidly and humane way, then uh, it opens up a lot of possibilities for a lot more states, not just Arizona, to start uh, blazing policy pathways forward. Thank you, Josh. Since we're on the topic of the border, um, I have one more thing. I think it was Tuesday, but uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, has been impeached. Ah, yes. Um, And and I want to ask you about that, but I also wanted to comment um, on AMLO's reaction to that. Oh, please. Um, this is obviously not word for word. I'm going to translate it. But um, he said that the trial against Mallorcas is Republican propaganda. Mm. And he said that if we, if Republicans actually genuinely intend to address the issue at the border and the immigration issue, then what we should be doing is we should be approving economic support for countries in Central America and yeah. the Caribbean. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I, I think uh, it's, I mean, it's the same old record from him. Yeah. Uh, isn't, I mean, he, uh, uh, look, the, the president of Mexico hates American conservatives, hates Republicans, he hates Texas. Um, we're, you know, we're all hate objects uh, for him. And so, so it's, it's completely unsurprising that he would evaluate any action that they take uh, on these grounds. That being said, he actually positively likes uh, Secretary Mayorkas. Um, uh, he mm-hmm. certainly likes the, you know, certainly likes the Biden regime. Yeah. So they've given him everything that he wants. Um, but I mean, what a surprise uh, that he thinks that the solution is to send him millions of dollars. I mean, what he doesn't say is that when we've talked to, not we personally, but when the United States has talked to Mexican officialdom about programs like this, uh, somehow it always ends up uh, in a fund that is controlled by the Mexican state in some way, yeah. even, the, even the money that's going to Central America. And so, you know, look, if they can get a few hundred mil from the U.S. taxpayer, why not? Uh, you know, and it's going to solve immigration. It won't, but so be it. It enriches them. That's their real. That's a real object. Uh, you know, one one thing that was interesting on the on the just dead Senate border bill, the one that was killed last week. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, I think, page eighty-five in the three hundred seventy-page bill, uh, there is essentially an unaccountable fund at the disposal of the president. Um, for uh, I forget what the exact language is, but it's like economic development and intervention in in sending countries, 
And uh, that I pointed out to more than a few people. And I think John Davidson wrote on this at The Federalist. Um, uh, so we'll link to that in the, in the show description. Uh, is, was, is probably the line item for the slush fund to send AMLO and the Mexican state in pursuit of that putative end, really knowing it's just a, it's, it's essentially a bribe paid to buy them off to secure policy cooperation during the election year. Wow. I would I would I would put money on that. Well, and on the topic of the Mallorca's impeachment, um, I've had people ask me this week, like friends, people that aren't really in policy, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, like that's great, like people that are are celebrating it, and I think it's important for us to tell our listeners a little bit. Um, about what's going to happen with that, right? Uh, it's not a solution. Um, I think if anything, they're going to use him as like a scapegoat um, to say like, well, you know, it was his fault and and he got impeached and everything's good. Is that kind of what you foresee happening? No, I I, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I mean, he he is he is responsible. He's one of many people responsible. The ultimate responsibility where the buck stops is, is with the president. The Biden regime. Yeah, uh, right. Or whoever is running the presidency right now, which I'm not I'm not sure is actually the president. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's a dispersion of responsibility. Um, but, uh, you know, Mayorkas is, is one of the individuals. Secretary Mayorkas is one of the individuals. And so he does deserve accountability for his failure to enforce the law and his willful failure to enforce the law throughout his tenure at DHS. Um, uh, that, that that being said, I mean, you know, any any anyone you and anyone watching this can can view um, the the division of the Senate for yourself. Uh, the Senate's the, the Senate's not going to convict, uh, and so the yeah. White House the, the the White House is not going to throw Mayorkas under the bus. Uh, uh, they're going to stick with him, knowing that the Senate will convict. The Senate will not convict, and he will continue in office. Um, uh, now, as to whether that makes us worth it or not, that is a question of partisan politics that I am going to refrain from commenting on mm-hmm. here at the hard country. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. Um, we're nearly out of time, but okay. I really want to finish this on a high note. And I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about the bullfight you went to in Mexico City. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, well, this is my favorite part. <laughs> yes, I got to see a bullfight uh, for the first time. I'd never been to one before. Uh, you know, I've been to a variety of sporting events uh, in my life of all kinds, uh, but a bullfight never. And I think I can synopsize it like this. You know, you can watch videos of bullfights. You can read about them. You can see them. And especially when you read about them, when you read Hemingway, for example, on bullfights, there's sort of a rhapsody uh, that's in it. It's impossible to understand unless you actually go. Until you're there, um, in the Plaza de Toros with 30,000 people in what's essentially a Roman Colosseum. Uh, you know, it's a very unique uh, sporting arena. And, uh, you know, the, the women all have bottles of wine and the men all have, you know, Cuban cigars. <laughs> and and it's, um, uh, it's, it, it's really an incredible, you know, three, four hours that you spend there. Uh, and, and, and to see what you see, which is life and death, Real life and death. The closest thing you'll ever get to uh, a, gladi- uh, a gladi- gladiatorial um, uh, contest. Um, uh, there is you recognize that it has cultural significance that goes far beyond almost any other sporting event you've ever seen. And I'm and, and I'm I'm a believer in sport. I think I think sport carries great meaning. Uh, but this might have been the most meaningful example of sport, broadly conceived, that uh, that that I've ever seen, and you know, I guess I'll I'll, I'll tell you, you know, just, there, there was so, we could do a whole show uh, on this. And keep in mind, I've only been to one of these. Um, but what impressed me, one of the things that impressed me was the respect and reverence for the bull. You know, the you know the bull is killed, uh, uh, and so and so in in three hours, you basically see six bulls uh, who are killed, and they're called, um, uh, Toros Lidias. Uh, they're, they're, they're specially bred. They're, they're, they're fighting bulls. They're not good for much else. Uh, so they're bred, they're bred for this moment. They're bred to fight. And, um, uh, you know, you, there's, there, there, there's kind of a, there's kind of a, uh, almost a liturgical procession to the death of the bull, um, which, which ends when the matador actually, uh, takes a sword. And as the bull is passing him, he's got to take, take the sword and, and, and kill the bull by essentially driving the sword through um, the shoulder blades uh, and and uh, ideally puncturing the heart, which is which is rapid death. That, that doesn't always happen. What's interesting to me is that is that uh, it is the bull. The matador is applauded uh, if he does a good job, uh, but the bull is always honored 
uh, by the crowd. And so you have 30,000 people there uh, who are there you know, to, to have a good time. Uh, but, uh, but, but at the moment of death, when it's known that the matador intends to deliver the killing blow, uh, I've never seen anything like this. Imagine 30,000, a very loud crowd, 30,000 people falling completely silent falling completely silent out of out of out of reverence it's not so the matador can do you know like oh he needs quiet to do his job it's out of reverence for the moment that's about to happen and then when the bull dies um uh and and they, they've got a team of horses to come and they hitch him up and they have to you know drag the bull's carcass off uh the crowd cheers the bull the they honor him and a, a friend of mine put it i think very well because um, uh, there were there were protesters out, you know, who were trying to shut it down. There's been litigation uh, against bullfighting in Mexico for for, for some time, uh, on the grounds that it's inhumane to animals. Uh, but, but 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 my friend who was with me at Plaza de Toros said this. Uh, he said he said you know uh, death death for these animals um, is typically alone, frightened, and stunned in a slaughterhouse. It's just the nature of of uh, I'm not a vegetarian by the way. So <laughs> I, I, I you know I eat, I eat lots of meat. Uh, but uh, uh, this bull uh, dies uh, in honor, applauded by thirty thousand, uh, and 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 with you know, and in some cases there's glory uh, in it. And now, does the animal sense that? No. But um, what it means for us is that there's something about it that I think speaks to something very, very primal, um, very. It's it, it's something that I'm still thinking about. I'll put it this way. Uh, you know, over ten days later, uh, the bullfight. And the need to see it again, and the recognition that it is a confrontation with first things, in a way that almost no sport is, uh, no other sport is, uh, I think is is transcendent. So, uh, this is probably a longer answer than you wanted. If you want the short answer, I like the bullfight, yeah. and I would go back. Yes. And that just recently became legal again, right? Because there was a period I don't remember how long, but a couple of years at yeah, least years, where think, yeah. they didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the Mexican legal process. Uh, it is it is legal now. Um, it's clearly very popular. But 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 look, I mean, th- th- this is the th- this is the left wherever you go, whether it's in Mexico or the United States or wherever. Uh, they always attack the, f- the 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 foundational expressions and acts of tradition, uh, religion, bullfighting in Mexico, um, uh, sport and violent sport in the United States. It's true uh, they have, and so and so this the, the, there is a there is a consistency to their method. And I think one of the things that we can do, especially as sojourners in a foreign land, is to appreciate, see, and participate to the extent that we can uh, in these foundational cultural acts against their efforts to destroy them. Well, thank you, Josh, for yeah. sharing. And thanks for your time today. And Always thank you to all of our listeners for being here every week or every other week. Um, we appreciate you listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.